All right, brothers and sisters, it's time to open God's Word together. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'll ask you to open up with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians in your New Testaments. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. And today we begin a brand new series on the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians quite a lot over the next little bit. I would always encourage you to bring a copy of Scripture with you to church, especially now as we meet. We don't have copies of Scripture available in, in pews in front of you or anything like that, but even, even once we start going back to the sanctuary, it's important to bring your own copy of Scripture, your own Bible, to church. And the reason why that is, at least one of the reasons why that is, is because in your own Bible that you read on your own, if you look at that Bible as we study God's Word here today, then God can bring to your memory later on, even years down the road, as you read that Bible, the things that, that you might have heard during a sermon or during a Bible study. You can mark it up. You can highlight. So I'd encourage you to bring your own Bibles as we come together for worship on Sundays. Now, like I said, today we begin a brand new series on 1 Corinthians. As I typically do, I sat down a couple weeks ago and I started praying through 1 Corinthians. I started looking through 1 Corinthians. I tried to divide it up into what sermons are we going to have and when are those sermons going to happen and how does the text divide up. And Lord willing, we will spend the next, give or take a few, 44 weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a 44-week series, okay? This is not exactly your seeker-sensitive church that you're coming to. 44 weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, before you say, wait a second, that's about 40 weeks too long. You know, I, I, can we go back to topical preaching or something like that? What, what is this going through books of the Bible for 44 weeks stuff? Don't think of it like 44 weeks on the same topic. It's definitely not. We're going to spend each week on a different topic. It's going to be radically different each week as it comes through the text. The things that come up naturally in this text are completely relevant for what we're going through today. Let me just give you a, a preview of some of the topics that we're going to cover in our sermons over this next 44 weeks, Lord willing. We're going to hit church unity, judgmentalism, church discipline, the Holy Spirit, contentment, homosexuality, the conscience, spiritual gifts, sex and marriage, singleness, women in the church, the resurrection of Jesus, and more over the next 44 weeks. And so, is it long? Yeah. Is it monotonous? No. Not at all. We're not going to be hitting the same stuff over and over again. And it's going to apply to tons of different situations that we're going through in 2020, 2021 in our culture. And maybe, just maybe, by the end of our 44-week series, this coronavirus stuff might have calmed down. Maybe. But who knows, right? We have no idea. But we're going to spend, Lord willing, about the next 44 weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll take breaks here and there for things like Christmas, and perhaps there'll be a, a, a situation in our country and in our world that we might need to stop and address directly on a Sunday morning. But Lord willing, this is our path, and we look forward to what God has for us in this book. And so it's my privilege to start us off in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 9. 
for our, our first week here in 1 Corinthians. So follow along with me in your copy of Scripture. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Paul says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, one thing you might have noticed as I read through that is in verse 1, we know who Paul is, but who is this guy Sosthenes? He says his brother Sosthenes, or our brother Sosthenes. Now, we don't know much about this guy, honestly. We, we just don't know much about who he is. We've got some good educated guesses who he might be. I don't want you to get tripped up on this, because you know Paul and you don't know who this guy is. Either he's someone who's with Paul at the time of writing of this book that is known to the Corinthian church, and so as he sends the letter, he says, hey, Sosthenes is with me too, and, and you guys know him, so I wanted to include his name in the letter. Or more likely, this is a scribe. This is a guy who's helping Paul write down the letter. Because remember, back in those days, not everybody could write. And, so, and some people could write much better, or much more legibly than others. And so this is probably somebody who's helping Paul write the letter. If you ever study First and Second Thessalonians, you'll see there Paul mentions another guy in those letters who's helping him to write down his letter that he's going to send to someone, probably to make it as legible as it can be. So I just don't want you to get caught up there or tripped up with who Sosthenes is. But the, the real question I want to ask as we come to this book for the first time is what do we know about Corinth and the church that was in this city? That's the city, Corinth. What do we know about this place? Well, the, the ESV Bible's introduction to the book says this. The city of Corinth was at the heart of an important trade route in the ancient world. And like many cities that thrive on trade, Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality, religious diversity, and corruption. And so this city that Paul's writing to here, this is a hub of activity. It's a big city. It's a city that's a hub of activity. People are constantly coming and going in and out of the city. There are tons of people who flock there for job opportunities, money-making opportunities. And as you can imagine, in a place like that, lots of things happen, including sin. Lots of sin happens in a place like this. It's a diverse place. There's all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. And people believe all kinds of different things and act in all kinds of different ways. When you read about Corinth, it actually makes you start to think of a couple modern-day cities in our country that are much like this. Something like New York City or Los Angeles or Las Vegas. So when you think Corinth, think New York City or, or Los Angeles or Las Vegas in modern-day America. Now, 
when I say that, you might be sitting there saying, okay, but what in the world can we learn from a letter written to a city like that? I mean, we live in Columbia, Kentucky. The, the place we're in is nothing like New York City or Los Angeles. What can we learn from a letter written to a city like that, especially considering this letter was written 2,000 years ago? What, what do we really have to learn from 1 Corinthians? Well, remember, think about this. The cultural centers of our world have an enormous amount of influence on the rest of the world. Right? Especially in America. The cultural centers of America have an enormous amount of influence on the rest of the country, whether we like it or not. And so New York City, places like Los Angeles, they have just an astounding amount of influential power on the rest of the country, even for those of us who live in a place that's much different, by all accounts it seems, to, to those places. And so movies and TV shows and music, they all come out of these cities. And our young people here in Columbia, our young people might not live in a city that's anything like NYC or L.A., but they are being influenced by those cultures. You better believe it. And so we've also got to be honest. As adults, we're being influenced by those cultures. We might be a little bit more firm in our ability to resist influence, but all of us are being influenced by these cultures. And so here's the question. Do you know how to counter the messages that our young people are seeing in movies and TV and social media and in music? Do you know how to answer the tough questions that they come with? Do you know how to respond to them when they see something in, in TV and in social media, when they see something that's compelling but it disagrees with the Bible? Do you know how to persuade them to come to Christ, to live for Christ instead of living for the world? Do you know how to teach them that Jesus is better than the world? Because I'm here to tell you, especially to parents and grandparents, it is not enough to, to just get frustrated and throw up your hands and say, just follow the Bible. That's just what you're supposed to do. It's not enough to say, the Bible says be good, so be good. It's not enough to say, the, the Bible says don't do that, so don't do that. While, while that stuff's true, that is not compelling to a young person who's honestly looking at different options in this world on how to live. Because the world is doing its level best to compel them to go that way. And so what are we saying in response? How are we teaching? How are we showing our kids, our young people, that Jesus is better than all of that? That Jesus is more compelling? That Jesus is more satisfying than all of that? Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to face the hard questions? Or is our response just get frustrated and throw up our hands and say, just follow God, that's just what you're supposed to do? We've got to be ready. And 1 Corinthians is a great book to help us with those things. Think about all the topics that we heard in the introduction there. All the topics that we're going to see as we come through 1 Corinthians. We're going to be hitting some hard topics, some hard questions head on. Our culture's hitting them. Are we going to speak on them? We're going to, Lord willing, over the next 44 weeks or so. Now that's what we know about the city of, of Corinth itself. What is the church like? Well, the church that Paul's writing to, this letter is a letter sent to a church in the city of Corinth. 
The church that Paul's writing to is very much like the city it's in. It's a very diverse church, made up of lots of different kinds of people from lots of different walks of life. But one thing we do know about these people is almost all the Christians in this church are Gentiles. And what that means when someone's a Gentile, it means they're, they're not an Israelite. They don't come from a family of Israelites. Remember the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? That's who God revealed himself to. And so if you came from an Israelite family back in Bible times in the New Testament, there was a good chance that your parents passed down to you a knowledge of the Lord, who the Lord is. But if you're a Gentile and you're in a church in the first century, your family didn't know the Lord at all. So this is a church made up almost entirely of first-generation Christians. The people in this church are the first generation in their family to come to know Jesus and to believe in the Lord. And so because of that, they are still very much prone to the temptations and the influences of the world. And it shows. It shows. I'd encourage you to read through 1 Corinthians sometime and to look at all the ways that they are prone to the temptations and the influences of the world. They have all kinds of problems in this church we see from this letter. There's immorality that they do nothing about. They're having arguments over factions in the church. There's a, a group in the church here, and there's a group in the church here, and there's a group in the church here, and they're all arguing with one another about who's right and who's wrong and who's more important. They're having arguments in the church over spiritual gifts. I'm more important than them because I've got this spiritual gift and they don't. This group of people is more important because we've got this spiritual gift and they don't. And there, there is so much selfishness in this church. Oh, the selfishness that you'll see when you read through this letter. And so, it's very fitting and right and important that Paul in verse 2 says this. You people in Corinth, you believers in this church, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You know what that means? Sanctified means set apart. Right? God has taken these people and He set them apart from the world. And He says, I want you to be different. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be set apart from the world. Well, that's us. That's us today too. If you're in Christ today, God has called you out of the world and set you apart and said, if you're going to follow Jesus, I want you to be different. I want you to look different than the world. I want you to act different than the world. Because you're going to have something that the world doesn't have. And I want you to be a witness, a shining light to them that they see as different than everyone else. He says they're called to be saints. Saints. Now, typically when we hear that word, we think Catholic Church, right? In the Catholic Church, saints are people that, that were so holy during their lives, and now they're dead, that their, their level of holiness is something that us normal folks can never reach. And so they, they pray to saints. It's almost a, a worshipful attitude towards saints. But the New Testament says, if you're a Christian today, you are called a saint. You're called to be a saint. Now some of you might be sitting there saying, I don't really feel like a saint. I don't, I don't feel like my life is very saintly. Right? But one of the themes in the New Testament, over and over again, is that you're becoming what you are. God wants you to act in accordance to what you actually are. God says you are a saint. 
And so all of us are, are trying to get to where we're, we're slowly but surely becoming that, right? God says, act as you are. You are forgiven fully and free in Christ. But, but we don't always feel like that, right? We're working our way toward feeling like that, being like that. You are, you are a shining light in a, a dark world. You might not feel like that. You might not be acting like that very much lately, but we're working toward that, right? So one of the themes of the New Testament is become what you are. Act like what you actually are in Christ. And you are, if you are in Christ today, you are a saint. You're called to be a saint. A set-apart saint from the rest of the world. All Christians, no matter who it is. And so it's really important that Paul says this, right? Because they've got so many problems in the church, and he says right off the bat, you guys are set apart. You guys are called to be saints. And so we're going to spend the next 16 chapters learning how to act like it. Learning how to be called out saints. And so that's, all that is the background that we're coming into as we begin our study of 1 Corinthians. This is the church in Corinth. This is the city that their church is in. Much different from our own, but lots for us to learn here today in Columbia, Kentucky, in 2020 on through 2021, Lord willing. Now I want you to look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 in the text. In verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I give thanks always for you. Even with all their problems, Paul thanks God for them. Even with all their problems, Paul thanks God for them. Why? Why? What's the reason? It's right there in verse 4. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul says essentially to them, even though you're, you're taking one step forward and then two steps back. That's the kind of church he's writing to. Even though you're, you're like that, I'm thankful you're a part of the family of God. Paul says, I'm about to tell you some really hard things in this letter. And he is. Like if you read through 1 Corinthians, I mean, get ready. The fireworks are coming. He's about to say some hard things to this church. But he says, even though I'm about to say some really hard things to you, you need to know that I, I thank God for you. I genuinely do. Paul says that to them. And I think there are some people here today, and perhaps some people listening in online today, who need to hear this. You might be messing up time and time again. You might feel like your walk with Christ is one step forward and then two steps back. You might feel like you are weak and you're giving in to the temptations of the world over and over again. But if you are in Christ, you are not a disappointment to God. If you are in Christ today, you are not a disappointment to God. It is God's joy to give you His grace. He's a God of gentleness and compassion. We read in Psalm 103 that God remembers that we are dust. He remembers. He always knows we're weak, we're frail, we're feeble, we're fickle. He, he remembers that we are dust. In Matthew 12, verse 20, it says of Jesus, 
A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know what that means? Reeds aren't, aren't something that we deal with a lot in modern day times, but a reed is something that you see growing next to bodies of water. And, you know, back in Paul's day, there's tons of them. And what do you do if you, you found a reed that you wanted to use for something? I mean, they're, they're tall, they're straight, they're firm. You could use them for all kinds of different things. But if you found a reed that was bruised or broken, what would you do? You just break it off, throw it away, and get another one. Because there's plenty of them. Get one that's good, get one that's useful. That's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does with us. We're bruised and broken reeds. We've messed ourselves up. But instead of just breaking me off and throwing me away and going and getting somebody that's more useful and less messed up, Jesus is patient with me and gentle with me. And he, he, he works slowly to heal me and nurse me back to health and back to usefulness. This is how Jesus treats us. It says a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. You know, a smoldering wick. Think of a wick on a candle. You try to light it, and it doesn't actually produce a flame. It just smolders, right? What would you do if you had that? Well, you just get rid of that one and go get another one. Go get one that actually catches a flame. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is patient with us, and he nurses us back to health and usefulness until we can actually catch a flame and be a light in this world for him. That's how he treats us. He's gentle. He's compassionate. And so you need to know this morning, if you're in Christ, you're not a disappointment to God. Paul thanks the Lord all the time for the Corinthians. And when you read through 1 Corinthians, you know they're, they're just messed up in all kinds of ways. But he thanks God for them because God gave them grace. And I am thankful for each and every one of you. If you're my brothers and sisters in Christ, I am thankful for you. Not because you're perfect and not because you never sin. Not because you're always, always, always giving 100% in your, your relationship with God. No, we're, we're messing up. We're failing. Some of us are apathetic toward God sometimes. Some of us are struggling with sin over and over again. But I'm still thankful for you. Why? Because God gave you His grace. And I know what it means. I know what it feels like to need God's grace. I know what it feels like to need the grace of God and to think, I'm, I'm lost without this. Without God's grace, I'm done. I'm ruined. I know what that feels like. And so I can see when God gives you grace like He had to give it to me, I can rejoice in that. I'm thankful for that. And Paul's thankful for the Corinthians. And if you're sitting here today or you're listening online and you have not yet received God's grace in Jesus Christ like what we were talking about, if you've not yet given your life to Jesus, He would rejoice to give you His grace today. God would rejoice to give you His grace today. It doesn't matter how much you've rebelled against Him. It doesn't matter how many times you've laughed at the idea of Jesus and turned away from Him in arrogance, He would still absolutely love to welcome you into His family, to forgive all of your sins, to give you eternal life, like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story, Luke 15? The prodigal son, he's, he's run away from his dad. He demanded his inheritance before his dad even died. He's dishonored his dad and embarrassed his dad in public in every which way. He's ruined his life. 
and he comes crawling back with his tail between his legs home because he can't even find food anywhere else. And he's rehearsing his speech. He's going to tell his dad that he's not worthy to be called his son. He's going to accept whatever anger his dad has toward him, whatever punishment, he'll accept it. It's his fault. And he'll just work for his dad as a servant. But what does his dad do? When he sees him a long way off, he runs to him. He hugs him. He weeps on his shoulder. He puts sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger and he slaughters the best cow and he says, we're going to have a party because you're back. This is how God receives sinners who repent and come to Him in desperation with nothing else left. Sinners who've messed it all up, this is how God receives us with joy and welcome. And so Paul is thankful for the Christians in Corinth. I'm thankful for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're thankful, not because we're, we're perfect, but because of grace. We're thankful because of the grace that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Now, the last thing I want you to see in our text this morning is in verses 7 and 8. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to focus in on that word guiltless. Guiltless. Now how is that possible? Guiltless. Do any of you guys feel guiltless before God today? Do any of you feel blameless, which is the word that it's used in some translations? Do you feel blameless before God today? These people, when you read through 1 Corinthians, they were anything but guiltless. They're guilty in a number of ways, just like, just like we are. They, they've got all kinds of problems with their church. In fact, I read 1 Corinthians and I'm thanking God for the, the lack of many of these problems in our church today. There's all kinds of problems and Paul says guiltless? How are they guiltless? And actually, to make matters worse, when you read through Scripture... This is actually what it takes to get into heaven. You have to be guiltless. You have to be blameless if you want to get into heaven. Did you know that? You have to be guiltless or blameless to even get to heaven. In Genesis 6, verse 9, it says Noah was blameless. In Job 1.1, it says Job was blameless before God. You ever read those things and think, I can't relate to that. In Psalm 119, verse 1, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. I remember reading that earlier on in my life and thinking, well, that's great, but it's not me. I'm, what hope do I have? In Proverbs 20, verse 7, it says, The righteous man leads a blameless life. And so, after the encouragement a moment ago, have we turned to 180? Do you feel hopeless now? Have we completely ruined all of that? Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I've made my heart pure? Who can say I'm clean from my sin? It's a hypothetical question or a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says much the same thing. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Not one. And so what hope is there if what it takes is being guiltless? The greatest news in all the world is that on the cross, Jesus took your guilt. 
On the cross, Jesus took your blame. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Christ we might be guiltless, blameless, spotless. Are you actually guiltless in and of yourself? Are you actually free from any sin? No, none of us are. But when God looks down and sees someone who is covered with the blood of Christ, He sees someone who is not guilty before Him. Because the guilt has already been taken care of at the cross. The guilt has already been transferred to Jesus Christ. The punishment, the wrath of God has already been taken in Christ. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, there is a way to be guiltless on Judgment Day. There is a way to stand before God on Judgment Day and to be blameless. Because when Judgment Day comes, and of course we don't know how exactly it's going to happen, but if, if God says, John Davis, how, why am I supposed to let you into heaven? I have nothing to plead in my own defense at all. Nothing. I deserve to go to hell. The only plea I have is I'm with Jesus. I'm with Christ. That's all I've got. And it's exactly enough. That's, that's the only way, actually. Because if you start pleading anything else, it doesn't matter how good of a person is, you're still condemned before the Lord. The standard is perfection. The standard is utter holiness and purity. None of us have it. It's hopeless without that. You try to plead with God on any other grounds, you're condemned. It's, it's hell. The only way out is Christ. Christ is the only way and He's everything we've ever needed. He is how we are guiltless before God. It's possible, but it's only possible in Christ. And so today I'm, I'm pleading with you if, you, if you know what that is, if you know what that feels like because you've already given your life to Christ, never let it go for anything. It's not worth anything in the whole wide world. But if you've never had that, if you've never had that, it's urgent that you make a decision before it's too late. Because without Christ, you are guilty. Fully guilty. Without Christ, we stand condemned. Without Christ, we know what we deserve. But with Him, we've got everything. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to feel that, what we just talked about right now. I pray that you'd help us to feel it in our hearts. I pray that you would burn it onto our hearts and into our minds that Christ is all we have, but he's all we need. And without Christ, we have nothing. Not before you. God, I pray that you would help us to learn to be the set-apart ones, the saints that you have called us to be. Help us to, to live every day in your grace and understand our desperate need for it. Help us to, to live in such a way where we thank you for everyone else that we see that comes to know that grace and that comes to experience that grace. And we thank you because we're so thankful to have it ourselves. We can't believe we have it ourselves and we wish everyone could have it.
God, I pray that if there is anyone here today or anyone listening who does not know that grace, that they, they would not be able to, to sleep. They would not be able to rest until they come to you for the grace of Jesus Christ to be made right with you and to have their eternity secured and safe. God, thank you for your word and thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.